Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Rula is the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture. Established in 2006, Ruler interviews the world's biggest cycling names and covers the world's biggest cycling races. Visit our website at ruler.cc and subscribe to support our in-depth features, long reads, independent journalism, stunning photography and immersive cycling coverage. I'm Edward Pickering, I'm the editor of Ruler, and this is Ruler Conversations. Hello everyone, welcome to this week's edition of the Rulab podcast. Ed is on holiday this week, so it's me, Rachel Jarry, staff writer from Rulab, and Olga Abelos, who is the editor of Velata magazine, taking the reins to bring you a Vuelta España preview. Later in the episode, we also have an interview with Dominique Powers, where she speaks about her journey to becoming one of the most well-respected photographers in cycling. So Olga, how are you? What is the vibe in Barcelona at the moment? The Vuelta is starting in just a few days. Yeah, hello, Rachel. Yeah, I mean, at the moment, we are all dealing with the high temperatures here in Spain. And Barcelona is getting ready for this big grand depart from, in, from the city, which is a, a bit, bit of a challenge because this is the most busy period for the city because of all the tourists around. Millions of people are coming every, every summer in Barcelona. And it's going to be maybe a big challenge for the city to close the city only for, for the race. What is the kind of attitude towards the Vuelta España like across Spain? Because obviously in the Tour de France, we know in France it's like a very big deal. How do kind of Spanish people view the Vuelta? It depends on the area of Spain because, I mean, in France, we, we always have the feeling that everyone supports the Tour de France because it's like a national monu- monument. It's like a, something like very from that represents all the you know French culture and all that. But in Spain, it's quite different. It depends on, on the area you live, you know. So, for instance, in Catalonia, where, where I'm based, I'm based in Barcelona. So I think this is, it's going to be very special because it's years La Vuelta doesn't cross <laughs> Catalonia, so it's coming back. In other areas, like, uh, like for instance, in, in the center of Spain, Maybe the people doesn't follow much La Vuelta because it's something that uh, that they don't feel much close to to it. And maybe in the north of Spain, there's a, like a big. They feel that the Vuelta very close now because a lot of big things are happening in the last years in La Vuelta, especially in the last uh, week of the race. 
And I think most people are very ex- you know, expecting to see what is going to happen in this uh, this year. But yeah, it's a, depending on you live, you live it in a, in a way or, or another. Mm. I remember being in Glasgow for the World Championships and they had, you know, the race going on in the city. And I think some of the local people are a bit like annoyed, maybe that the roads were closed and things like that. Uh, in Barcelona, how is it? I mean, what's the attitude between the people who live there to having their city like shut down for a day, basically? Wow, it's a wow. That's a that's a very good question. And uh, how much time do we have? <laughs> you know, the thing is that you know that in Barcelona we have a new major. I mean, that he won the the elections a few months ago, and one and and La Vuelta starting in Barcelona. It it, it was one of his. Um, big goals so because he was part of the he was not the major before but he was part of the government and one of the things he wanted to do because he his party was in charge of the sports area so is this bringing new uh big events to barcelona again like sailing athletics cycling you know whatever so this is like a very it's like a like a political movement for them and because of that there's a different you know, from one side, we're happy to have La Vuelta here. I mean, people that we like cycling, it's uh, it's amazing. But from the other side, we don't really know if Barcelona needs like big events. <laughs> because, you know, the aim of these events is to bring more people, to bring more tourists. And, and we don't know if this is what we really need. And also, there's a lot of things are happening all the time in Barcelona, marathons. So the city is closed every two weeks. So we are used to that and sometimes a little bit annoyed. You know, you don't know sometimes what, how to feel about all these things. <laughs> yeah, it's not like Barcelona is a city that's necessarily short of no. people anyway, is it? No, and I think during the last political campaign, this same party, which is, uh, the, they are the socialists, the PSC, what we call them, um, they said, like an effect, like something like that, they said they want to bring the Tour de France to Barcelona. They want to organize a big depart in Barcelona. And we all we were like, oh, <laughs> really? <laughs> I mean, I've loved that, but do we really need this now? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Especially when you yeah. know, you're talking about how hot it is and all those people crammed into one city. Yeah, it's quite stressful, maybe. That's it. I mean, and and I think the weather is going to change during the weekend. But uh, the previous days, as we are now, as we are talking to you. So, I mean, this is insane. I mean, doing the sports outdoors with this uh, temperature is, I think it's crazy. That's one of the main problems the Vuelta has, doesn't it? Year on year is the extreme, extreme temperatures. I mean, is there a solution to that? Maybe moving the race one day to where it's not as crazy high heat, like August is the height of summer, basically. Yeah, I remember a couple of uh, years ago, or maybe three years ago, that uh, La Vuelta only happened in the north of Spain. You focus all the, the stages in one part of Spain. In the north of Spain, you avoid the high temperatures. But the thing is that you forget about the rest. More or less, it's like, how to say, it's like in France, when you go through the Massif uh, Central, so you always have like big temperatures in, in that area. And maybe I guess it's part of the competition, no? how to deal with, uh, with the weather. I guess it's part of the cycling. But it is true that Vuelta 
there's a big contrast. So maybe you can spend one week, I mean, which is crazy because of the, the hot weather, and then there's a big transfer to the north of Spain, and then on the next day, it rains and rains for, for a few days. So the cyclist should be ready for that, and that can maybe can provoke changes in the GC or in the performance of, of the cyclist. The Vuelta is such a varied race, isn't it? Every year it's always a bit wild, crazy weather, really steep climbs. It's really challenging. And this year's route as well. I mean, starting with a team time trial, it's quite unique for the Vuelta as well, especially in a city. Have you managed to see much of the course? I mean, do you expect it to be a bit dangerous to run a team time trial through a city centre like that? There's there's few corners in that parcours, but I've been I've been checking all them. And most of them are in very big streets, so I don't think it's going to be very. It's technique, but there's a lot. The, the, the cyclists sh- uh, should churn quite often, so they have to be very coordinated uh, among them. But I don't think it's going to be dangerous unless it rains, because maybe maybe it can rain during the weekend. So raining in a city you know what can happen. You know, we, we saw it in Glasgow. <laughs> Hopefully not. I mean, we don't, it's not what anyone wants to see, is it? Any of the main GC favourites uh, go out of the race for a reason like that. So, but I think like the big favourites for that stage who everyone's talking about are Jumbo Visma. And there's been some criticism that like, are we giving, you know, are they already with two of the strongest riders in the race with Jonas Finger going Primus Roglic? Are we then giving them an even extra advantage that they can gain time in the in the team time trial? Do you think there's any beating Jumbo Visma this race? In the time trial, maybe, yeah, I think Jumbo Visma are the, fa- the favourite ones. But also Ineos have a, has a good team for the TT with Castroviejo, uh, Ghana and, and Thomas. Maybe the other ones are a little bit weak. I mean, I guess Egan Bernal, maybe he will be dropped at the end of the time trial. But, but I think Ineos Grenadiers have a, a good team for, for the TT. The main contender to Jumbo Visma is Remco Evenepoel, who's the defending champion. And he won this race last year, but arguably he's got harder opposition this year to be and it's going to be interesting to see how he gets on you know battling Jumbo Visma who got that true pronged approach with Vingago and Roglic do you think it's going to be hard for him to manage beating a team that has got so many options he's been quick step has been criticized in the past maybe for not having a strong enough grand tour team haven't they mm-hmm. yeah and we saw it last year I mean Renko Benepoel he competes almost alone in some of the, the stages. So, And I think it seems that it's, it, it's going to happen this time again because the team that uh, Saudal Quick Step has brought to the, the Vuelta is not maybe the best team they could do. So, wow, I don't know. Uh, I think, I mean, I think Renko Benepo, he, he has now, he has enough experiences in, in, in races like La Vuelta because he, he won it. So, he know exactly how to deal with it. I guess he he will be like a big contender for Roglic, and uh, and well, I, I was going to say maybe for Bingegaard, but let's see what can happen, <laughs> what happens in this team. <laughs> to be honest, because I mean everybody says Roglic is going to be the leader, but uh, you know we are used to to turning points in cycling in the last uh, Grand Tour. So let's see. Let's see what can happen. Yeah, I think it's going to be so interesting to see how they play it because these are two 
like superstars of cycling can we see either of them necessarily sacrificing their own chances to work for the other maybe it'll just be that they let the road decide they let they see who's the strongest on the day i think the 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 road will decide this time but um i mean if i speak from my heart <laughs> because i <laughs> so i think rolex deserves to be the leader of the team you know because jonas he won the Tour de France, so that's it. So the season is done for him. So I hope Jonas comes to to support uh, Roglic. I think he has to do that. But let's see, I think he, I don't know. Um, but I don't know, there's a lot of questions on the table. Maybe Jonas is there because Roglic is not the 100%. It's difficult, isn't mm. it? Because I think, yeah. like, I'm the same as you with my heart, I think. Roglic deserves the chance, you know, Ringigo's already had the tour, but these teams, they don't think like that, do they? It's just about winning the race. I mean, it's cutthroat and it's not really about fairness, who's had the most chances and who hasn't. They're going to go with the rider who's going strongest, I imagine, when the race comes round. I guess where Remco Evenepoel might have a slight advantage against those two is that he's not done a grand tour in full yet this season so maybe he comes with that freshness and maybe a, bit, a little bit of extra motivation as well like if you're Jonas Vingago and you've won the Tour de France how motivated are you to give as much effort to the Vuelta It'd be interesting to see yeah yeah let's see uh, how the team behaves in in very specific stages with the steep climbs or in the third week of the La Vuelta uh, let's see how how the team behaves because Jonas is a good climber as well also Primo Roglic and we have a very strong team. This team can win the Tour de France. I mean, <laughs> but you know, one of one of the things that I really like from La Vuelta is that a lot of things can can happen. You know, so because uh, there's always uh, cyclists that uh, maybe they had a crash early in the season or in the middle of the season and they they couldn't finish the Tour de France or other races, and they take La Vuelta as like a you know, like the last chance, no, of the of the season, and you got this, and then you join it with the fact that La Vuelta has always those uh, kind of stages, very with explosive finales, and uh, you know, different, you know, a bit a little bit crazy, no, because there's no like um, how to say it's like uh, sometimes when when I really wonder how they draw the 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 whole thing. Because, you know, it's for me, it's, I don't really understand how they do it because they just that make like stages and then they try to connect them. You know, it makes no sense if you look at the map. No. So sometimes when you look at the, the Tour de France uh, map, it, it has like a coherence, like a meaning, you know, in itself. But La Vuelta is like a, <laughs> something random, put it here, another random stage there. Yes. <laughs> If they take each stage like like a whole thing, you know? Yeah, maybe they have to treat it all like one day races because of how, yeah, the terrain is so intense. It's so steep, a lot of the climbs. I mean, we're thinking about Remco. He he started cracking kind of in the final week of last year's Welter, didn't he? And this year, the climbs at the same point of the race are significantly harder. Uh, they're going up the Col de Tourmalet, Angliru on stage 17 as well. He survived last year, but if he was losing seconds on those climbs and the climbs this year are even harder, I think it's going to be a challenge for Remco to put up a fight to Yumbo, to be honest. But he's not the only, you know, he's not the only contender, is he? We've also got UAE team members with Juan Ayuso 
with Jay Vine, Mark Soler, Jao Maida. There's a lot of strong riders in UAE as well. So maybe they'll be the ones to put up a fight. I mean, Juan Ayuso especially, he's an incredible talent. What do we know about him, Olga? Do you know much about him as a rider? And do you think he'll be able to put up a fight this year? Because he's been injured, hasn't he? Uh, there's a lot of ex- expectations uh, on Juan Ayuso. He was third last year. And um, this season, the team prepared him to be like a, like a real leader of the of the team. The other day, we the, there was a, an interview in a newspaper here in Spain where Ayuso was explaining how how he was preparing himself for La Vuelta, how was training, how was eating, all the restrictions he had to do with, uh, you know, to find, uh, to get the, the perfect weight and all that. We can see him very, very thin, like uh, maybe, well, too much, <laughs> too much thin, maybe. Let's see, because, you know, La Vuelta is a, it's a very hard uh, Grand Tour. And yeah, he's ready to be the, the leader of the team. And I think the UAE have prepared a team to, to support him. It's always a tricky thing to expect too many things for, for, from these young riders because he's only 20 years old. So do we really want him to win a Grand Tour? Or maybe we need him to go slower and maybe we can enjoy him for maybe 10, 15 years more and not, you know, being burned in back to too soon i don't know there's uh, you know i'm i'm always you know thinking about these kind of things you know and 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 i'm asking myself a lot of questions about this young generation of cyclists i don't know yeah it's a difficult one because you know sport is about those marginal gains and about high performance but at the same time there's a, probably a, should be a duty of care from the teams to make sure that the riders aren't taking it too far and maybe thinking longer term, like you say, about their careers and how long they can sustain being professional cyclists for. Yeah, it's funny, like in this race, the other end of the spectrum maybe is Garrett Thomas, who's 37 years old. He's a lot older and he's had a really long career, which could, could end up being quite a contrast to the generation we're seeing now who are racing so hard from such a young age who might not be able to keep going until the 37. But Garrett Thomas is a rider who is managing to still be at the top um, after such a long career. Do you think he's got a chance in this world, sir? Or is it, I mean, I personally can't necessarily see him challenging like Vingago of Roglic, but I guess we shouldn't count him out. What do you think? Yeah, I don't, th- I don't think Geray Thomas can win La Vuelta España, but I really think he can do it very well in, in the way he, he did it in, in Giro d'Italia. I mean, he, he raced in a very smart way. He was always there. You know, maybe he cannot have that, you know, explosive element or he's not so punchy as he used to be. But he's very consistent, solid, as you said. And why not? Maybe we can see him in, in the podium, you know. I, I don't think he will win, to be honest. But maybe maybe he can be third. Why not? Yeah, exactly. I think he's got. we've got to see, like, if he can race consistently and keep it going throughout the three weeks. I feel like that's where his strength really comes from having that experience and having that maturity to know how to really ride a Grand Tour. Well, it's a really top quality start list. I mean, amazing lineup for the Vuelta this year and it's going to be a very exciting race. I and mean, Olga, I do want to ask you, I'm not going to let you go without <laughs> asking your prediction. Who do you think is going to take home the red jersey? Ah, oh, this is a tough question. I think Primoz Roglic can win. I think he's, for me, this is the... the He's a favorite one, yeah. Then the second and the third 
in the podium, it's uh, yeah, I think it's going to be more difficult to to predict. But I think Primoz Roglic, yeah, for me, he's the the, the most favorite one. Well, time will tell. So that's it for our chat about the Vuelta. Thank you, Olga, for all your insights. Um, we look forward to all of your coverage on the Velata website, social media accounts and newsletter. We're now going to listen to an interview with Dominique Powers, a photographer who features in our current women's issue, which is available to buy now. So here's Dominique. This episode of Ruler Conversations is brought to you by GCN+. It looks like it's going to be a cracking edition of the Vuelta at España this year, and you can see every unmissable moment on GCN+. I'm really looking forward to being able to watch every stage of the race ad-free. On the days when life gets in the way, I can catch up any time because there are full replays on demand. And for the really busy, there is a selection of tailored highlights packages, long, short, or just the final kilometres. And as a cycling journalist, one of the most useful features is the ability to pause and rewind the live coverage. This feature is great for trying to work out what's happened and why. You can also take the action with you if you're out and about, because you can watch GCN Plus on any device. GCN Plus have brilliant commentators and co-commentators, and an expert panel of knowledgeable ex-pros who will dissect and analyse the action, but also convey the fun and passion of La Vuelta. And you can relive the best moments and biggest talking points on the weekly World of Cycling show, which airs throughout the season. With GCN Plus, the coverage continues all year round, with coverage of the upcoming Autumn Classics, including the season's final monument at Il Lombardia. And we're moving fast towards the 2023-24 cyclocross season, as well as action from the track and UCI Mountain Bike World Series. You'll also have access to a huge collection of exclusive cycling films covering all aspects of the sport, from chats with legends through epic adventures to record-breaking challenges. There are already 150 titles, with more being added every week. A GCN subscription costs as little as the price of a cup of coffee a month, and all of our listeners can get 15% off an annual GCN Plus subscription. Head to gcn.eu slash ruler15 to subscribe and save 15%. That's gcn.eu slash ruler15 to subscribe and save 15%. And now, back to the show. I guess it would just be good to start for you to tell me a little bit about your background. How did you get into photography? Like, why was that the pathway you took? I guess, what have your steps been to this point to kind of get to this point in your career? Obviously, as like a really well-established photographer in the cycling world. I think the kind of biggest impetus was growing up between two beautiful places that I wanted to capture. My dad lives in Steamboat Springs, Colorado, and my mom's in Middlebury, Vermont. And growing up, my sister Gretchen and I always had little point-and-shoot cameras, and we'd bring them on all our hikes and adventures. And so just like documenting what we were doing, which was a lot of athletic endeavors, was just like natural and, and part of our lives. And I took some classes in high school. And when I went to university, I went to the University of Vermont and studied art education. So I set myself up to be a teacher, but still had a concentration in photography. And so like part of that, I taught at high school for a semester and had two photo classes and that was great. And it was such an experience to like get real world work experience while still an undergrad. When I graduated, I decided that I didn't want to go right into 
teaching. I felt like I wanted to get more experience before giving back and moved to New York City because I was really interested in commercial photography. Okay. Started working in a photo studio there and called Pier 59. So it's this very big photo studio, lots of like high-end fashion and advertising photo shoots go on there. And so it was this kind of immediate exposure to kind of like highest degree of commercial yeah. photography that that there is. And I just found that so enthralling. And after about a year and a half, wanted to be working on the photo shoots instead of for the studio where the shoots happen. And I left and worked as a digital tech. And I did that for about five years. Mm -hmm. And that means that I would do onset color editing and file management for photographers. So there'd be like a photographer, a digital tech, and anywhere from like one to five photo assistants. And so the assistants set up all the the lights, they light the subject, and then a digital tech is in charge of helping capture the subject. And working as a tech, I worked with, you know, I was probably on over 500 photo shoots. And so I'm work, I've worked with in so many different photographers for so many different brands, so many different levels of production. And that is, you know, an experience that I'm so grateful for because now I'm transitioning into being a photographer and I know exactly what I want and mm-hmm. there's there's so much more to the job, right? If you talk to anyone who's been been in it for a while, it's like taking pictures is maybe 20% of what it entails. Like, yeah, you have one shoot day, but you have, you know, one to four weeks ahead of that in pre-production with the client or planning logistics around it. And then afterwards you have one to four weeks of post-production depending on on the product and or project and how many rounds of retouching you go into. So having that, I guess, more like technical and production-minded experience has made the transition into that way easier. Where like yeah. that isn't that isn't the learning curve. The learning curve has been really like trusting myself and listening to what I want to create. And, you know, pushing myself in, you know, like conceptually and like how I approach projects. And that's been really fun. It's made it really fruitful in that like I'm, and especially when starting out. So in the transition from being a tech to a photographer, the first like really big project, especially within cycling was a photo series, The Leaders of Gravel. At that point, I had done a handful of commercial or editorial shoots for brands like Rafa and Giro and um, Giordana, but they were all like local in LA and usually the subjects were friends. So it was all like still within my bubble and the layers of gravel came about in a time when I like just wanted to really open up my community and my experience in the industry and make work that I was really, you know, excited about. And already, because I just got into bikes or got into cycling, I, you know, would bike to commute when I lived in New York City, but I wouldn't have considered myself a cyclist before 2020. And even with that, like, limited time in the cycling community, I could already tell there was, like, so much momentum around women cycling and it felt really 
motivating. And it felt that like, if I wanted to create something in that space, that it would be, that there would be space for it. The project, it's something that I had been sitting with for a while. The Actually, the fall prior, I had wanted to do a, essentially a very similar project that was just more around like leadership and advocacy in the outdoor industry. So I was going to photograph portraits of women more generally across sport, but it was kind of, you know, the fall of 2020, COVID was getting like coming back up on the upswing. It was election season. Like people weren't very, there wasn't a lot of like optimism around. And so I was like, this isn't the time. So I kind of like put it on the back burner, but that like idea of photographing women in this way with the backdrop, really intentional time together was something that I was like, you know, it it just kind of hung around. And so when it came back up, the whole project kind of came together, or at least like the beginnings of it over the course of a couple of days. Mm-hmm. I found out what the Radivist was, DM'd them on Instagram. I was like, you guys seem awesome. Like, how do I get involved? They were like, send us an email. I was like, okay. And basically pitched the idea to, to John Watson. And he was like, great. Can't wait to see what it looks like. It's like, <laughs> oh, it's, it's that, it's that easy. It was my first time essentially like pitching an editorial story to any kind of outlet. Like I I didn't know what that was supposed to be like. And so all of a sudden the project had a place for it to go, Mm -hmm. which felt really, really important at the time because I was nobody, no one, no one knew who I was. And to ask someone, especially like the women that I wanted to get involved in the project to just ask for their time for a project that may not have a place to go for just was scary. So knowing that it had an outlet or that it had like a place that it would live was inspired a lot of confidence. And and so I just started asking and the the women who were involved, it was often like I maybe had like five or six women in the very beginning. And it was over the course of a three-week road trip. So I started in LA, went up to Santa Cruz and then San Francisco, and then ultimately over to Steamboat, which is where around Steamboat Gravel, which is where I photographed many of them and then through Boulder to Durango to back back to LA and I would just slide into everyone's DMs <laughs> hit them up over Instagram and everyone said yes mm-hmm. and it was such a reaffirming experience of that like if you're doing something with enthusiasm and like genuine intent and especially like for the betterment of others and ultimately like a community at the whole like people want to help you yeah they they want to say yes and often are just like grateful that other people are helping carry that torch and for each each portrait I was with each subject for about an hour plus like we would meet at trailheads or like the in a, in a parking lot with a good view or, you know, it was the most, Sarah Sturm was the morning after steamboat in the parking lot where her bus was parked in like the base of Howlson Hill. And everyone was just so grateful and so excited to talk about their experiences in the sport. And it was so special. And it was something that like in the making of it, I 
knew what power it would have, mm-hmm. uh, both just like for the community, but you know, also like business minded. It was like these women are going places, and like I want to go there with them. And it made it so that when the next race season rolled around, um, I showed up to Sea Otter and photographed my first bike race. And it was all of the same women. Mm. And to then like, you know, I'd, I spent so much time in the editing and listening to all of their interviews again to transcribe them. Like, I felt like I really knew these yeah. people and, but I'd never seen them race, right? Like all of these yeah, women yeah. were incredible athletes, but I had never like actually seen them do the thing. And yeah, so showing showing up and photographing them at Sea Otter was just like, such an experience like I couldn't stop smiling and that I think having my career in the cycling industry start from such a place of love and care and like friendship in a lot of ways just made it all the more fulfilling and authentic and one of them Ali Tetrick I went on to photograph her wedding I feel like showing up just really genuinely being someone that people want to have around yeah. essentially that's like a really big part of it. I mean did that differ quite a lot from the commercial stuff you said you were doing before like I don't know was it that community and I guess the niceness of people something that drew you to staying in cycling and kind of doing more and more stuff in this world I guess. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. There it's just such a bond, especially when you, you know, it's like regrouping of summer camp every like month, month and a half, especially with the Lifetime Grand Prix series where it's like the, the band's getting back together, whatever state and whatever town. And that kind of like consistency of seeing the same people and like kind of immediately becoming a part of that community. And also with the other photographers, that's something that has been so fun and fulfilling like I have so many like selfies on start lines with like the the friends that I've made in the in the photo like on the kind of like media teams and whether it's a gravel race and we're out like in our jeeps around course like going to different spots it's like oh they just passed mile 25 it's like okay well I'm I'm at mile 47 so like I'll let you know when they come through here like how's your day going you have like enough snacks or you're you know photographing cyclocross where all of us are just running around with our cameras to even just like catch eyes with someone and like just that kind of like nod of like okay we're out here we're doing this that that camaraderie. Do you think that like knowing the riders like you say getting to know them does that change how you approach photographing them do you think? Absolutely with portraits being what I love to do like I if I can get someone's time if I can get someone's eye contact like that that's the greatest mm. gift and those are always the the images that feel the most me and having that personal relationship so that when you're at the finish line and they've just absolutely spent themselves and they see you catch, catch your eye for a second like little acknowledgement of like okay like you're you're here for me both to take my picture but also like as a person with love and respect and when that exists is really special and yeah totally changes 
it's so different taking a picture of someone that you don't know and therefore like you can't care about something that you don't know about and so there's a different like way of looking at someone that you don't know versus someone that you care about from my side which is like a as a journalist the there's definitely always been like a very male dominated sphere in cycling journalism and cycling writing. Um, how was that kind of space for you as a woman, like to go in as like a female photographer? Was it welcoming? Did you feel like you were at home there? For sure. I would say overall, because there's definitely been a couple less, less great experiences on, mm-hmm. on start lines, but for the majority of the time, you're either at least at the at the tour I had this experience where it's like everyone's just working mm-hmm. and they don't really care like the one time I ended up like on a finish line for the finish line shot yeah I was one of maybe two women out of 40 dudes with mm-hmm. their two foot long lenses and like they were kind of like mumbling amongst themselves because you know they've been doing it for so long and probably working together and so that it's like one well, I don't know that I like would want to be yeah. friends, friends with these guys. So like there isn't the like intention to create relationships. But like yeah, at, at this point at the gravel races that I go to, it is still probably like eighty to ninety percent guys. But like I know just about every single one of them. Like mm-hmm. there's a lot of. I mean, it's also it's just smaller amount of people there at like the end of a gravel races versus the end of a world tour stage, but I definitely lead with kindness, mm. but I'm also not afraid to throw some elbows. And, you know, if there's a place that I want to get to or, you know, any, anything like that, just being really quite self-assured. It, it, I'm definitely grateful for my height. I'm about mm. 5'10", so at least okay. I can really look, look in people's eyes. So I'm, I'm yeah. glad that I have that. I don't know. There's not, it's kind of like, it's fine. I definitely like, it would be amazing to just have more women documenting the sport. And like there, there are some incredible women photographers out there. And there was definitely, I guess, more at the tour than I had seen. I mean, granted at that point, the, the only other (laughs) European race that I, had had been to was Perry Roubaix a, okay. a couple months before, but I guess like that in comparison to like the cyclocross, mm. World Cups and World Championship that I photographed, like yeah, there was a higher percentage of of women covering the women's tour than those races, mm. but it, never enough. Every race that I go to shoot at, I hope that the next year there's two of me yeah and I guess that's what getting your work out there and getting it featured and stuff you're part of the representation to show other people that it can be done which is really really important as well and I just wanted to ask kind of more generally how would you describe like your approach to taking a portrait and like your style if that's easy to do I would say that when I take someone's portrait I try to put their humanity first Mm. and that it's about more than just capturing an image. It's about creating a moment in which the subject feels really seen and therefore gives a bit more of themselves. 
those are the images that that really sing when I'm able to be successful in that. Did you have any kind of other artists or photographers that inspired you when you were starting out or were you always sort of more just going for your own thing? I don't know. Did you have any inspiration? Oh, for sure. I guess like generally my approach to photography, the last photographer I worked with um, as a tech is this one, Magdalena Wyszynska, who is incredible. And like we, we were such a team and she has just such a way of connecting with people and getting like really authentic emotions out of people. And so being able to, to work with her and see how she interacts with others was such a learning experience and really set the precedent of like authenticity and that like when you give yourself, you get more from others. On the cycling side, seeing Jojo Harper's work mm. from Paris-Roubaix from the first first Paris-Roubaix. I mean, that's when I discovered her work and she is, you know, such a way like the, her relationship with the athletes that she works with comes through in her images so clearly. And that is just so special. And you can absolutely tell the difference in her more feminine gaze on these female athletes versus her male counterparts. And that was just so inspiring. And then also she's really lovely, has been like, we we are now friends. She was also one that I interviewed on, on the podcast series. It was about, it was for women in cycling media and journalism. Yeah, just having having a, a friendly face in faraway places makes such, such a difference. So yeah, yeah, definitely grateful to have such strong and empowered female role models like that's that's what it's all about and that's what I look forward to being to others you know it's about taking up space but then also creating space for others it's so interesting like the parallels you can draw between like taking a portrait of someone and doing an interview with someone like how you need to kind of create that rapport with someone and like try and relax the subject if it's a rider you need to try and make them feel like they can open up to you and stuff I mean would you say like the having that rapport and relationship with your subject can like make or break the shot? Is it of that importance? For me, it is. Yeah. For the work that I want to make. Right, like there's there's plenty of shots from races, from start lines, from finish lines, from the time before and after where it's it's a candid, you catch someone in a beautiful moment, it's nice light and like it can be a beautiful photograph, but it won't be a Dominique Powers portrait and like what makes the leaders of gravel series so special and why I think those images are so successful is that they were taken at the end of an hour interview talking about gravel cycling and these women's role in it and what they want for it and so they were in this space of such empowerment and confidence and it wasn't like necessarily in, intended that way when I started but like seeing the results of that seeing these women embody their experience and their role in the community and letting that come through in the images it's just so powerful
That's it for this week's edition of the Ruler Conversations podcast. Thanks everyone for listening. You can visit ruler.cc or download the new Ruler app to read all of our digital coverage from the Vuelta España. We'll also be producing a daily newsletter from the race, which you can subscribe to via our website. Finally, don't forget to get your hands on a copy of Ruler's current women's issue, issue 121, by visiting our website and becoming a Ruler subscriber. You have been listening to Ruler Conversations. Rulo Conversations is made by the editorial staff of Rulo magazine. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Rulo and on Instagram at Rulo magazine or visit our website at Rulo.cc. This episode was produced by Amber Miller of Content is Queen. Even on a budget, Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.